listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts. This is episode 11. We're back after a winter break, and we're looking forward to the spring 2021 season of Latin Experts. And I'm your host, Karma Chavez. Since Hurricane Maria battered Puerto Rico in 2017, people on the archipelago have suffered from a lack of basic supplies alongside government inaction and outright hostility. In addition, Puerto Ricans continue to be hit by more natural disasters exacerbated by climate change, and people on the archipelago and in the diaspora have struggled and protested in innumerable ways, which in some sense culminated in what is called the Verano Boricua, or the Puerto Rican summer of 2019, which resulted in the resignation of its governor. There's a new book series out that's designed to reflect on the massive uprisings that rocked Puerto Rico during the summer of 2019. And next month, my colleague, Marisol Lebron, an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina-Latino Studies here at UT, will release a short bilingual book as a part of the series. And that book is called Against Muerto Rico, Lessons from the Verano Boricua about how Puerto Ricans are resisting colonial capitalism in order to foster a life-affirming future for the archipelago, which is the subject of our conversation today. This book extends Dr. Lebron's ongoing research program, including her award-winning book, Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico, which came out from the University of California Press in 2019. It examines the growth of punitive governance in contemporary Puerto Rico, and also Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm, which she co-edited with Yarimar Bonilla, also in 2019. And as I said, I'm very lucky to have her as my colleague, uh, Marisol. Thanks for joining me on Latin Experts. Thanks for having me, Karma. I'm excited for the conversation. So I guess let's just start with some some basics here, because I don't know how much people are going to know. So let's just start by having you tell us a little bit about what the Verano Boricua was. Yeah. So in July of 2019, there's essentially two weeks of massive protests that rock Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, it's one of the largest kind of protest movements in, in contemporary Puerto Rican history. And some of the marches people, you know, estimate had, you know, half a million people in the streets, uh, you know, kind of the largest marches in Puerto Rico in recent memory. And essentially, the reason why all of these people uh, came out into the streets was to demand the resignation of Puerto Rico's governor at the time, Ricardo Rosselló. So Rosselló had found himself in uh, quite a bit of hot water uh, when these chats between him and his closest kind of friends and advisors, um, they were hosted on the Telegram messaging app, they got released about 891 pages from the Center for Investigative Journalism. In these leaked chats, uh, what we see is essentially Rosellón's closest uh, advisors 
you know, engaging in kind of all kinds of, you know, locker room talk uh, is is what it was euphemistically uh, called at the time, but really misogynistic, sexist, homophobic, racist, classist language throughout, um, really disrespecting Puerto Ricans at a moment where they were in, experiencing intense kind of vulnerability, right, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Um, in particular, one of the most controversial things that comes out of the chat, and there are just so many, is really this moment where there is a discussion about bodies that had been accumulating in the the morgues, right, the forensic centers um, in, in Puerto Rico. And Rosillo and his, his kind of confidants discuss ways to squash the story so that it doesn't uh, kind of get out the, the fact that there are so many bodies accumulating, that there's no plan for how to deal with these bodies. And at one point, uh, one of his, one of the folks on the Telegram chat makes a joke about, you know, feeding the cadavers to a crow, right? Uh, having to dispose of the bodies in some way. So these chats get released and people were furious, right? Um, people were furious because of the ways in which it was clear that the upper echelon of Puerto Rican uh, governance was did not care about the people that it was supposedly there to govern on their behalf, right? It was clear that the kinds of conservative logics, the, the kinds of sexism and racism that ran through that administration. So Puerto Ricans took to the streets to really demand that, that Rosselló leave office. And not only that Rosselló leaves office, but that that entire kind of corrupt government apparatus that supported him, that took part in these chats, uh, that took part in supporting um, his administration also leave. Um, and so that's some of what I, what I talk about in the book. Yeah, it's a fascinating read. I should say you were uh, nice enough to give me an advanced copy of Microsoft <laughs> Word, so I, I, you want the real thing, you know, soon too. But it's a it's a fascinating read, and you lay out these details really, uh, really, really well. And I, I, it was riveting because uh, I knew some of it, but I didn't know a lot of it. And I wonder if we wonder if we could talk about the title of your book. So mm -hmm. against Muerto Rico, obviously it's a play on words, uh, but its meaning is more significant than just kind of the play on words. Uh, uh, so I wonder if you could explain the title of your book. Right. So yeah, it's obviously a, a play on Puerto Rico, Muerto Rico, right? So kind of this this idea of death, right, runs through through the book. And really this re rejection of uh, necropolitical governance, right? So the, the argument that I make in the book, and this, you know, I should say the, the book in some ways was an opportunity to expand on some writing I had done for for NACLA and for for their blog. I had written a piece right when the protests were first happening in, in July 2019 that, you know, called the, the protests in, in Puerto Rico are about life and death, right? And given my body of work, this is obviously a, a central central concern of mine. But one of the, the things that I argued in that piece and that I kind of expand upon in, in the book is really that, yes, people were in the streets because 
these chats were leaked and um, the kind of content of these chats was were, were vulgar, shocking. But the, that wasn't the only reason why people were in the streets, right? They're not just in the streets because the governor called women whores or, or called um, uh, used homophobic slurs or, or any of that stuff that obviously incited some of the anger. But what I argue in, in the book, right, is really this idea that what Puerto Ricans were protesting was not just Roselló, but really all of these kind of local elites and forms of governance that really make people's lives worse, right? They really increase people's vulnerability to harm and death, right? And they do so in the service of uh, colonial capitalism in Puerto Rico, right? And so in many ways, while people were demanding for Rosello to step down, they were also, you know, protesting to demand that many of these structures that um, kill people, that make their lives more difficult, that make them have to migrate to the United States, right? Because life in Puerto Rico has become um, unsustainable in so many ways, right? They were calling for those structures to be dismantled as well, right? And, you know, these protests weren't just about kind of lodging complaint, but also about, you um, formulating new visions for the future, right? About imagining new ways of um, structuring society and structuring life in Puerto Rico in a way that is really life affirming, right? In a way that values and treasures um, Puerto Rican life, right? Um, and, and so this is what I try to try to say in the book is that what we see in, in these protests in 2019 is not just about getting Rosselló and his cronies uh, to step down, but really about a rejection of all of these policies and practices that come together and try to deaden the island, right? They try to create a muerto rico. Um, and so that's where the title comes from. That's a really helpful explanation. Um, and I love, early on, you used the phrase necropolitical governance. And I think for some people, that term necropolitical might be an unfamiliar one, but you've really laid out what ne necropolitical governance looks like. So it's not just uh, suggesting that we should feed cadavers to crows, but it's to make life literally unlivable uh, for people there. And so um, I think it's a really helpful explanation. And I, I want to shift a little bit because one of the ways that I read your book is, uh, of course, it's a it's an indictment, right, uh, of, of necropolitical governance. Uh, but it's also uh, a celebration of a particular form of resistance. And so your book is about identifying these lessons. But I wonder if before we talk about what those lessons are, if you might be able to characterize for us uh, Puerto Rican protest culture uh, prior to the Puerto Rican summer, because there, there must be a reason why we have some specific lessons from this moment. So what, what did it look like before? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, the, why the kind of protest movements of um, the summer of 2019 are so significant, um, and this is something I touch on in the book, is that for many people, they both looked and felt really different than previous kind of protest movements. And I think, you know, that was something that was noticed definitely in Puerto Rico, but also in the diaspora, right? And so, like, a lot of how I 
interacted with these protests, like I had actually been in Puerto Rico like two weeks prior, and I talk about this in the book, and you know, there was a lot of kind of political mobilization happening in Puerto Rico at the time, but I like could never have predicted the kind of upheaval that was going to come just like two weeks later, right? But definitely, we you could feel it that people were fed up with the situation that this had been something that was mounting since Hurricane Maria, since the onset of the debt crisis, really over the past kind of, um, you know, 10 years, we've seen this kind of increase, kind of anti-austerity, anti-colonial kind of militancy. Um, but really what m- made the protests in the summer 2019 really different in many ways were, were kind of the questions of who were the protagonists in some ways, right? And I'm, I'm hesitant to use that word because I think, you know, what we really saw was a rejection of traditional protagonists, protest protagonists in Puerto Rico. But the folks who were kind of at the front and center in the protests were um, folks who have traditionally been very marginalized within Puerto Rican, the Puerto Rican political sphere, right? So, you know, even radical kind of politics in Puerto Rico is still very kind of white, very male dominated, very upper class, right? Even among kind of leftists and, and pro-independence organizers, that's been a chief kind of complaint is, you know, the fact that the folks who are fighting uh, for social justice issues, right, um, don't necessarily always resemble those communities that are the most impacted. And the protests this summer really kind of um, challenged that in some key ways, right? So we saw women kind of front and center in these protests um, in a lot of ways. And so people speculated that the reason why um, women and queer folks were front and center in, in these protests was because of the content of the chats. But really what we've seen in Puerto Rico has been that women have bec- have been kind of front and center in protests. In, in general over the past 10 years um, because of the ways that austerity kind of lands on women in, in different ways, right? And, and impacts um, women uh, in, in, um, in kind of really severe ways, right? So um, women, but in particular, Black feminists were really um, creating the kind of agenda, right? Really trying to highlight the ways in which um, the political conditions in Puerto Rico were affecting um, the most vulnerable folks, but also affecting folks writ large, right? So really demanding a kind of intersectional analysis that was attentive to the ways in which, you know, wide swaths of the Puerto Rican population were affected by these um, deadly policies, but the ways in which the most vulnerable were affected. So we saw a lot of um, queer folks, um, women, particularly um, black women taking kind of leadership roles in these protests. Um, and we also saw a kind of really interesting um, class dynamics, right? So a lot of working class and low income folks also um, playing really interesting roles in the protests and making um, demands, right, for what kind of Puerto Rico they want to see, what kind of Puerto Rico they want to live in. So really the the race, class, and gender dynamics were, were fascinating, right, and were really visible and on display in these protests. And so the argument I make in the book is that we, we kind of learn a lot of lessons from the protests of the summer 2019 that because of the really kind of unique group that came together at this particular moment. And so I think that, I mean, that, that that's fascinating to you. It, it has resonances with the United States proper, the, the mainland, right? Uh, in the sense that we've seen shifts in our movements that have centered Black feminists, Black queer voices as well. 
and so, you know, you think about the transnational nature of, of, of organizing and of movements and you um, see, I think, some of the resonances there. But I would like for us to spend, so intersectionality, the importance of intersectionality and, and, and thinking about leading with the voices that are most impacted. But let's talk through what some of these other uh, lessons are that you've identified that were, were so significant from the summer of 2019. Yeah, so I think some of the, you know, I, I, I think there was a lot of lessons, right? And I, I zero in on like six in, in, in the book. But, you know, so the, the first one kind of being this idea of the importance of intersectional social movements, right? And really this idea that Puerto Rican social movements have been at their strongest when they have included different kind of tactical approaches, um, address kind of um, issues that cut across kind of social class, that center kind of um, vulnerable, marginalized voices, right? That that's when we've really seen kind of Puerto Rican politics at, at its strongest. And so there was a way in which this the protests over the summer centered that and, and served as a really important reminder. Um, some of the other kind of things that, that I focus on in, in the book, right? You know, another, another one that I talk about is like the idea of pleasure and protests, right? So the idea that, you know, and this again, I think has a lot to do with like who participated in the protests, right? Um, so one of the kind of most famous events that happens during the protest is actually like the, one of the last moments in the protest, right? Before Joseyo, uh, the governor resigns, right? Is this pejreo um, combativo. And this was organized by um, queer DJs, right? And where we see um, queer folks, um, women, uh, really getting down and dirty to some reggaeton music uh, on the steps of the cathedral in San Juan, right? So like the oldest cathedral in, you know, the new world, right? <laughs> so, and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're dancing, <laughs> um, to Pejreo, like, uh, you know, and demanding that the governor resign. But really, you know, these moments in the protest that, that become kind of really significant kind of postcard moments, if you will, like snapshot moments, mm -hmm. right? They're moments that are really about embracing a bodily pleasure in politics. And so the, the you know, the kind of argument that I make in the book is like, if we look at these kind of necropolitical policies that the governor, that the government's been kind of pursuing, these are policies that literally have fostered um, the intense increase in kind of rates of femicides in Puerto Rico and um, hate crimes and killings of um, trans Puerto Ricans, particularly trans women, right? And so what we saw in that moment was, um, you know, this perreo combativo becomes this moment of saying, like, we're here and our bodies matter. And you've tried to, like, get, you know, wipe us off the face of, you know, the, the archipelago and we're still here and we're fighting, right? And the way that we're going to fight is actually through this embrace of our bodies, right? And this pleasure of being in, in community and in space with each other. Um, and so we saw that a lot in the protests, right? The Pejreo Comativo ends up being kind of the, the most um, memorable like moment from that. But um, there were lots of moments throughout the protest where people really took leisure activities or these moments of being in community and being in pleasure with their, you know, fellow protesters seriously, right? And so one of the things I say in, in, in the book is that we have to take that seriously, that that's not this frivolous, silly kind of thing, but they, you know, protests should be pleasurable and should center pleasure because that's about imagining different ways of relating with one another and, and being in community, right? And if so much of how the government is asking us to think is through 
these extractive models or through these models that cause harm, right? That actually centering pleasure lets us do something a little different. Um, and then some of the other kind of lessons that I talk about in, in the book, right? Center around the idea of the, the criollo kind of elite, right? Um, so these kind of um, uh, white land-owning families that have been part of the Puerto Rican elite for, uh, you know, not only decades, but centuries, right? Mm -hmm. um, acknowledging the ways in which that has been a class that has caused much of the immiseration and harm, right? Um, other things I talk about are focus on the role of the police, right? So I try to go through these various um, lessons and think about the ways in which the protests actually tried to challenge some of these kind of harmful um, logics and policies, but then also posit like alternatives, right? Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's one of the things that's really... Um significant in here is you really, you, you, you see, you've provided a deep analysis, but you've also really done a fantastic job of augmenting the analysis uh, that they were providing. Um, and I think that's sometimes very hard to, to balance. Um, and, and I think that, you know, especially on the, and policing is of course your uh, big research area, but uh, the, that section where it's all about how the police is not the people, um, even though, police are workers, even though they might be working class, even though they might be members of the family, um, that they're still not, you know, the people in, in a sense. Um, I don't know if you want to say a little more about that point. You hadn't said much about that, but I yeah. thought that was really fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's like, you know, this, this was actually an opportunity to kind of like extend my longstanding gripe. Right. And so my students who, you know, take classes with me, this is something that we always talking about, talk about in, in class. Right. But really this mm -hmm. idea of, you know, a lot of what's happened in the past, you know, decade, right. Especially with the debt crisis working, uh, worsening is, you know, this idea of, Oh, the poor police, they're like under-resourced. They have to leave to go to the United States. Like they're just like other workers who are experiencing these intense forms of austerity. And there's a way in which that's true, right. Police work has gotten increasingly more, um, you know, just the conditions have been horrible, right? So they're working longer hours, their pensions are also under attack in certain ways as a result of um, the attempts of service Puerto Rico's debt, right? But the argument that I make in the book, and this becomes clear when we look at the protests, is that like police have repeatedly rejected attempts to join anti-austerity protests. So there's, in, and we see it here in the United States too, but there's always an attempt during um, large-scale protests in Puerto Rico to to beg the police to join the protest, right? To say like, right. you are also workers, you are our brothers, you are our sisters, like join us. You're also being hurt by this government. And what we see is, you know, the police don't join. Instead, they actually start to, in those moments, enact violence, right? And so there's mm -hmm. a lot of famous scenes that come out of the protests in 2019 where people will be pleading with the police and the police will turn around and shoot protesters with rubber bullets in response or right. pepper spray the crowd in response, right? And so they actively reject that solidarity. Um, and so the argument that I make in that section is that that is a reminder for us to think about the structural conditions of policing, right? So not just think about, you know, our uncles or brothers or sisters or cousins that might be in the police, right? Or the fact that the police are working under these terrible conditions, but to think about the work that policing does structurally, right? Which is to um, 
main, uh, maintain kind of social control during these moments of crisis, particularly in these moments where we see um, colonial capitalism in, in a moment of crisis, right? And so that's one of the things that the chats actually reveal, right? What we see, mm-hmm. one of the things that gets revealed through the chats is that the Rosario government had essentially been working to squash the the power of the federal monitor that had been appointed by the Department of Justice to oversee the Puerto Rico Police Department because of their massive civil rights violations, right? And so we see that actually the police and kind of governing elites are working hand in hand to um, strengthen the role of the police, to strengthen their power, and to enact kind of violence against Puerto Ricans in these moments where they're asking for a different way of living, right? A different mm-hmm. experience of of governance, right? The police are there to make sure that that those protests don't get far, right? And that's what we yeah. kind of see over and over again uh, yeah. uh, throughout the examples. Definitely. Well, um, I always think it's good to end on a note like that, that reminds us that the police <laughs> are there to do, uh, but we are out of time today. Uh, so uh, Marisol, thank you so much for being with us on Latin Experts. Thanks so much, Karma. These were fantastic questions. Uh, and we are all very excited for your book against Puerto Rico, Lessons from the Verano Boricua, which will be out next month, right? I think so. It should be out soon. And um, just one thing to also note about it is that I was really excited to work. Um, it's it's being published by a press in Puerto Rico, feminist, queer, um, radical press. And they were awesome and worked with me to make it bilingual. So this will also, it's a really short book. Um, it's, uh, you know, like under 50 pages uh, each version, but it's also published in English and in Spanish. So um to make it as accessible as possible to folks both um, in the diaspora, in the U.S., and in Puerto Rico. Awesome. So we will all look forward to checking that out again today. uh, Our guest is Dr. Marisol Lebron, who's assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latino-Latino Studies in the book Against Puerto Rico. We'll be out next month. Uh, Thank you all for listening. This has been Latin Experts. Hi, all. This is Ashley Nava Monteros, the Communications Associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram page. Follow us at Latino Studies UT to keep the conversation going.